Hey y'all, welcome back to Between Sessions. My name is Ebony Harris. And I'm Elisa Bokeen, and we are two brown chicks changing the face of therapy on both, both sides, sides of, of the, the couch. couch. <laughs> Your song. Yes. <laughs> welcome I back. Get you hype enough. If I could just I get you hype enough, I feel like I gotta get behind you. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> and I'm still gonna respond like this. Alisa is the hype man of the group. Uh, (laughs) We are excited to have um, our guest today and to have this conversation. It's going to be a good one. Um, Alisa, I'm going to allow you to do your thing. Yes, yes. So today we have Alejandra Restrepo. Correct. Yes, Alejandra (laughs) Restrepo. She is a licensed psychotherapist in Texas, in the great area. in the Houston, okay, in the greater Houston area, and we are going to be talking today with Alejandra around the challenges of being a first generation um, child of, in, of immigrant families, uh, which has its own unique set of challenges. We're going to be speaking a lot mm-hmm. in particular to the Latinx experience, but Alejandra, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ebony and Elisa. I'm excited to be here. And yeah, yeah this is a topic that, you know, uh, I'm really passionate about. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a first generation myself, but I'm an ma- immigrant. I've been here in the U.S. for 16 years. And I have worked a lot with first generation uh, individuals as well as their families and their immigrant parents. So this is a topic that is very, very dear to me. Yeah, it's also a topic that that is very near to my heart because I am first generation um, child of immigrant parents. My parents um, came here from Mexico. So I know that there are firsthand a lot of challenges to trying to uh, just really reconcile living between these two worlds it always makes me think of the scene in selena so if like y'all should have i'm sure that our listeners you've watched selena right (laughs) at this point and the episode where the dad is talking about you know we're we're not mexican enough for the mexicans and we're not american enough for the americans and it really is that you're really between these two worlds but tell us about the work that you do alejandra and why you got started in doing this work Yes, well, I have been working in the mental health field for over 15 years, almost since I got here, Um, you know, different positions, not all of and uh, maybe seven years ago, I got my license as a therapist, but I was doing all, you know, like case management work, and I was a rehab clinician at some point, all associated with mental health. So I have been exposed to like the Latino community here in Houston, working on their mental health needs. And at some point, you know, after working for all this time for other people, I just realized that I wanted to like do my own thing and offer a super high quality service to Latinx people. And that's why I created Shia Psychotherapy, which is my private practice. And yeah, my goal with Shia is offering top notch services to the Latinx community, offering bilingual services, allowing my clients to like speak Spanglish in their sessions and express their emotions, their thoughts and their needs in the language that they want to, and being able to like, you know, uh, show that bilingual identity and that Latino identity and sometimes that American identity as it comes, right? In a very natural and safe environment. So I work with preteens, um, teens and adults, I, you know, I also work with 
other communities, but I specialize in trauma work with the Latinx community. That's amazing. That is awesome. I, you know, as you were talking about just your journey moving into mental health, of course, but even before when we were discussing like first generation, I was like, do I know what first generation means? Like, I, I truly was like, I thought I did. But then as y'all started talking, I was like, uh oh, maybe I don't. So can you tell us what is first generation? Well, the uh, plain definition of first generation is children of immigrants, right? Kids that are born here, um, you know, and their parents came from different, you know, countries. And specifically, we're going to talk about Latin American um, immigrants, right? But uh, there is also a group of people that I consider first generation. And these are kids that were brought to the country. They were born in Latin America or in other countries, but they brought here as young kids. And these kids are Americans, even if they don't have a status or they're not recognized as such, they are Americans. And uh, in my opinion, and from my, you know, uh, from my clinical perspective, I treat these kids as first generation Americans. Okay, yeah. that clears it up. I think that was the piece where I was kind of confused because I, you know, I know being born here, but then I also was like, well, I consider people that have immigrated and come a very long time ago to be Americans, right? But I can understand if you come as a child versus an adult, your experience is going to be different. It's completely different for these mm-hmm. kids. They don't know the culture where they come from. They are not familiar with it. Uh, they're identified as an American, as Americans. So it's it's just very unfair to treat them as if they're not just because they don't have a legal status. Um, you know, right. their culture, their costumes, everything is American. Yeah. I, I, I often joke there about there was, there's a stand-up, uh, I remember George Lopez one time, one of his stand-ups was, you don't, like when you hear and you're in the U.S., and you're like, yeah, I'm Mexican, I'm Mexican, blah, blah, blah. He's like, and then you go to Mexico and you realize, oh my God, like what's happening? Like you realize how American you actually are when you go back. So that's what it, it there is. There's these challenges, right? Where you're between these two worlds. And what, you know, one of the terms that I've heard is the immigrant paradox. Yeah. And so that relating to, that describing this, this phenomena that explains why U.S born youth or youth that come here at such a young age, why they're more likely to experience higher rates of mental health problems um, than those who may be immigrated, than than youth who immigrated um, from other, from from foreign countries, right? Like maybe like at an older age or what have you. Um, But what, from your experience, what are some of the most common mental health struggles that you're likely to see with first generation children? And before we navigate that topic, I just want to clarify something that being first generation, when we talk about first generation kids and the first generation community, we cannot cluster them like in a, in a, in a, in a group because sure. there are a lot of different things that determine how your life is going to be, how your mental health is going to be. For example, think about status of their parents. If you have your parents came here as um, you know, citizens or permanent residents in the U.S., your experience right. as a first-generation American is going to be so different it, compared to a child whose parents cross the border, they have very limited resources, they probably didn't yeah. have the chance to go to school in their native country. Uh, so the set of needs is completely different. So we have a lot of subclusters in these, you know, 
in this category. Um, and based, you know, based on that, you know, we have some commonalities too, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say just real quick, the other thing that made me think of it, depending on where you also end up, right? So if you go somewhere where like, let's say you're an immigrant from Cuba, right? And you mm -hmm. go to Miami, right? You're the, like the culture oh, shock yeah. then going to, you know, Idaho, Right. <laughs> like, right. It probably will be uh, much different. The yeah. context is so different because, as you said, Elisa, if you are a Cuban person and you go to Cuba, you have a whole Cuban community there. You have a second Havana there, right? right For right. myself, as a Colombian, we also have a very strong presence in, in Florida. So for me, going to Colombia, they call it like the Barranquilla, which is kind of like a, <laughs> it's a city in yeah. Colombia. It feels different if you go to like North Dakota as a Colombian. I think your experience is going to be so different. So yes, very that's, different. That's, yes, that's right. One of the common things that I notice among first generation kids is as these high levels of stress, and they're just out of proportion, and they're not even compared like to like stress that other kids go through. Not because it's higher, it's because it's different. Like for many uh, first generation kids, they are expected to perform certain tasks that don't, you know, they, they don't align to their age. They're expected in many cases to translate for their parents, for example. They're expected to fill out applications and forms with language that they don't understand. But since they are probably the only person in the home that speaks English, they're kind of that bridge that communicates their parents with the rest of the society. So those high expectations, they just take a toll on these kids and they feel a lot of pressure and they don't want to disappoint their parents. And that just, you know, th that just channels into like different things like anxiety and depression, uh, feeling lonely and not having enough support, for example, at home because parents have to work long hours because they don't have the time to like spend like with them and like help them with homework or like sit down and talk about how did your day go or things like that. So they experience a lot of loneliness. They become very resourceful or in some cases they develop a lot of like trauma mechanisms just to cope with the loneliness of depression and the you know, the, the high level of stress and the responsibilities that they have. Um, the other thing is this, this paradox between being invisible and being, you know, and put yourself out there. Uh, many immigrants, because of racism, because of all this hatred against immigration, uh, many immigrants develop these mechanisms like to basically disappear and banish from society. So they raised their kids like you know telling them that they should be invisible that they shouldn't stir the pot and they should be as quiet as possible so that also brings a lot of feelings of loneliness and like you know that impairs them from connecting with people or like finding mentors or reaching out for support advocating for themselves so it's very isolating for these kids. And it's just this paradox of like, should I reach out for support or should I just like stay quiet and like keep it to myself? Um, I think those are the main ones. And also for older uh, siblings, the responsibility of taking care of younger kids, the expectation that they have to help the other kids succeed, not just with homework, but in general, like for the rest of your life, you're responsible. So having that parental like role and 
not having a choice. Uh, it's it's just it's it's a lot for a kid. Yeah, yeah. What I'm hearing more than anything is the pressure and the stress combined with the trying to figure it out, right? Like, so you're trying to figure it out. You don't really, it's so difficult, I think, even as adults to kind of bridge the gap between these two different worlds. What's it like as a kid? And, you know, I think just even the pressures that as you go into adulthood, right? Like the expectations that the parents have, they don't go away, right? It's just, you're older now and now you're, you're still expected to, like you're saying, like a a high level of, of expectation. It it, it makes me think, I I, I laugh about this now. Uh, I'm like, sometimes the requests that my, my, my parents will have my father passed away last year, but my father, you know, for some reason he thought because I had a college education, I should be able to troubleshoot all the, you know, technology. Oh yeah. Like I remember it was like the remote or something. And I'm like, daddy, I, I don't know. He's like, what all that college serve you for? And it's like, this is not what we're doing. <laughs> Yeah. So the expectations don't go away. They don't. They don't. And they're usually very high and unattainable. Mm. And it's it, and and you get used to that pressure. It's just so mm-hmm. hard to set up boundaries because our mm. our culture struggles a lot setting up boundaries, especially with yeah. family. You yeah, what are boundaries? Yeah. <laughs> what are boundaries? boundaries? Try, to, try to tell your parents this is my boundary. Like, you know, get the hell out of here Come with on. that. As you were talking, I was thinking about, like, I kept thinking, like, that's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of responsibility. So the responsibility to, like you said, translate and help with, like, paperwork and things like that. The responsibility to your culture and showing up in a certain way at home, but also the responsibility of feeling like I need to fit in at school and things like that. Um, So I'm curious, like, academically, what are some unique challenges for first-generation children? And how does that negatively impact their mental health? You just mentioned, I think, the most important one, which is like living between two worlds, mm, okay. especially when you live in a Latino environment, like when your home is Latino, when you have certain, you know, principles that you follow, when you have certain values that you have as a, as a Latino and in a Latino house, and then you have to go to an American school, living in between those two worlds and meeting both expectations for both worlds, it's a lot. It, that's the first challenge. Um, the other thing that I've noticed is it's, it rela- it's, it's related to language. I used to work for um, a school program. I used to supervise a school program, and I saw a lot of misdiagnosis related to language. I noticed that a lot of people would, a lot of kids, uh, young kids would get diagnosed with speech delay or autism, and they didn't have those diagnoses. Uh, they were probably Spanish, you know, speakers speaking Spanish at home and doing the transition to like an American, uh, like, uh, school where it was not like a duolingual program or something like that. Right, right, right. So, and and that show was also the need for bilingual, like, diagnosticians and and speech therapists that are more aware of the environment and how like Latino kids grow up because yeah, if you don't have English speaking parents at home, you're going to learn Spanish first. Most kids do, they transition well. Yes, they, uh, in, the, in the transition process, there's going to be some confusion back and forth, Spanglish and whatever, but they're going to be okay. 
there is no way to diagnose a kid that is doing that transition. So a lot of labeling first and uh, a lot of like lack of awareness around the culture. Um, the other thing I, I think I already mentioned this and is that a lot of these kids don't have enough supervision and support at school i'm sorry at home but it's not because their parents don't want to it's because they don't have the tools to help them so as i said many of these parents didn't have the chance to go to school some of some of them don't even know how to read and write in spanish so how can you support your kid with schoolwork if you don't even were able or had the opportunity to go to school yourself so that creates a great barrier and then we go back to the topic of being invisible and growing up as invisible. So when you don't want to be noticed, it's going to be really hard for you to like reach out for support and ask for mentorship, raise your hand and ask questions. So you stay quiet and you just like figure it out on your own. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's just a lot. And, and, you know, a lot of these parents really want to try, but sometimes they don't have the time because they work long hours. They don't have the means because they have very limited resources. They are very right. meeting their basic needs. So they cannot pay for Kumon or a tutor, right? So it's just it's just a lot of barriers that pile up around like these kids' needs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in, in, in not only in when they are like, let's say grade school, elementary, because I, I remember that being one of the experiences. It's like, I was expected to do really well, but then, and I would remember my mom would say, even if I wanted to help y'all with your homework, I couldn't, you know, my parents had like a sixth grade education. And so even if they want the language, their, their lack of education, and then how that translated into we want you to go to school. We want you to go to college, do it. But then they had no idea what that would take as far as helping mm -hmm. me support that. So I had to figure all of that out on my own. Like I knew I was going to go to college, but it's not like my parents could tell me, this is what it means. This is what this, the system is going to look like. This is what you got to do. And this was before the internet. So I had, you know, like I had to do that research and figure it out. And that's, that is the, the case for so many of these first generation kids who they want to go on into college. Um, they don't necessarily have the blueprint for it. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not like, even if their, their family support them and like, yes, we're working hard and we, we have your back, but we really don't know what we could do or how to even do it. So there's such a need um, for that, which, which kind of takes me to my next question mm -hmm. in, in terms of these different systems, right, that the kids have to exist in. So mm -hmm. how does discrimination and let's say systemic racism um, further deter immigrants, especially Latinx folks, um, from seeking even therapy? Oh, yeah. Well, where do we start? <laughs> Um, you know, again, going back to like, uh, the experience of being an immigrant, you don't want to stir the pot. You want to do things by the book. You don't want to, you know, give people any excuses to deport you or right. to like judge you. So why would you want to go and talk about your deepest fears, emotions, and thoughts with someone that you don't know? So that's the first thing. It's, it's, and I think that's a huge barrier. Uh, my experience working with immigrants, for example, is that they have a lot of fears and misconceptions about therapy. They think that 
our documents, our confidential documentation is going to be shared with authorities, with ICE, which is immigration, with their employers. And there is a huge fear of their retaliation and the consequences that that might bring. So I think misconceptions about therapy, fears of being, you know, judged, labeled, the fear of being kicked out of the country is huge. And, 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 and there are many others, you know, like the barriers because of the socio socioeconomic status. If you need to worry about meeting your basic needs, you are not going to be able to, you know, either consider therapy. There is not enough access to, you know, therapy, uh, affordable therapy. And whenever they access, you know, that service, they usually find therapists that are not trained to work with them. Uh, I was reading uh, about like the percentage of Latino therapists in the U.S. and it's only 6.3% of the total number of Latinos, uh, I'm sorry, of therapists in the whole U.S. And I don't even want to think about how many of them speak Spanish. So right, there right. Is, we need more representation in our field. We need more people that are competent. And I'm not saying... You know, only Latinos can work with Latinos. But I, I'm thinking on, you know, people that are like culturally humble, that are like yep. truly interested on learning, like all these many subclusters that we talked about, that not all Latinos are the same, that not all Latinos have the same needs, struggles, and like, you know, culture, because it's so different to see someone from Mexico and someone from Argentina. Like, for right. example, Argentina has a very solid, uh, you know, um, tradition around therapy. In Argentina, people go to therapy and they use it as a self-care strategy. Everybody goes and everybody talks about it. And it's so unique. And you know, if you don't know yeah. if you don't know this about Argentinas, you're gonna you're gonna assume that they have never been exposed to therapy, but they go to therapy for years that actually love like psychodynamics, the psychodynamic oh, okay. approach. So they're used to go as as a form of self-care. Interesting. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. And and I think what you said also with not necessarily somebody who is Latinx, which again, we talked about before, it, we're not a monolith, uh, but that not all Latinx therapists speak Spanish. You know, I, I speak it, but I know that my Spanish is, um, I posted a reel about it. It's, it's very ratata, right? Ratata. Like, <laughs> Because, you know, when you speak casual Spanish, just everyday Spanish compared to in a professional setting, it's not the same. So um, you're making such a good point. Just because you're Latinx doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be offering um, therapy in Spanish. So I know with me, it, it requires me to access a different part of my brain that I show, you know, it's just, it's just another, another way of being. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. that also applies to clients when they are receiving therapy services when they can access to their memories in spanish and they can communicate that in their the language that it was experienced it just feels so different it just That's such a good point mm -hmm. yeah so it, it works both ways and what i've heard from my clients is that even if their their clinician doesn't speak the language but they try to communicate to learn when they're curious when they're open when they don't just throw judgment oh like oh it, like simple things like uh you know they they you know you usually some people assume that all latinos are like mexicans and that can be very offensive for other latinos right. that are not mexican not because mexicans mexicans are great 
and they're yes. wonderful. <laughs> but we have our yeah. own culture. Yeah. Exactly. We don't eat tortillas, for example. So don't make that assumption that we all eat tortillas because that can be, it, it just kind of like touch a very sensitive spot for some Latinos that want to be recognized right. as Caribbeans, as uh, Andinians as indigenous, as white Latinos, it, we're so diverse and just being open and curious about it. I think it just creates that connection with the person that you, you care about who I am. You just don't think I'm a, a, a one more Mexican. You think, you know, that I'm a Bolivian person and I have like different needs. I have different experiences. Yeah. Especially if you're in Texas. Yeah. yeah. If you're in Texas, yeah, like we are. Oh, so you're Mexican. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, because people want to be thing. seen. Yeah, people no. want to be seen and heard for who you are. Yeah, right. And and one of the points that you made earlier, I remember. I don't remember where I heard this from, but even for non Latinx therapists, if if we're talking, especially with couples, right, and talking about communication and emotions, and if you know that um, Spanish is their first language or Portuguese or whatever their first language mm -hmm. is. Like sometimes in communication, it might be better for them to express themselves in that language first to get the emotions out. And then if they need to translate it for whatever reason, that's important as well. It's super important. And, you know, there are words in Spanish that don't have a translation in English. And you experience the emotions based on the language that you have. Right, right. How can you communicate that to someone if you cannot use that particular word? That's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's something that, you know, I have noticed that when you get to do these like Spanglish sessions, you kind of like expand the uh, communication a lot because, you know, people can go back and forth between languages. They can actually connect to the emotion and experience the emotion based on the, you know, if they were thinking in English or Spanish, uh, it, it makes a huge difference. So they can make all that whole like triangulation between the emotion, the language and the memory. That's good. That's good. So we have had a few therapists come on and talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> and so, of course, I think you've even hit on it a little bit. But as a first generation, like what makes you more vulnerable to suffering from imposter syndrome? Well, I think, yeah, I think Latinos are, we are in first generation kids are particularly vulnerable to like imposter syndrome, especially mm -hmm. when you you are the first one in your family breaking all these generational right. patterns and, and going to college, for example, and graduating from high school. And you're a pioneer in your family. So you have all these expectations uh, from your parents and they want you to succeed and do all these wonderful things. And that, that's wonderful, but that can be a lot of pressure too. Um, and the other thing is like dealing with uh, your Latinidad, you know, like uh, unfortunately we, uh, we need to recognize that imposter syndrome is not just an internal mechanism that just works in, with inside you, but it's a societal thing. And it's, it's something that is fed up with, you know, uh, unsafe work environments, with lack of opportunities for people of color, uh, you know, and just with like the way media portrays Latinos and people of color, right? So if you grew up, seen and television Latinas in the kitchen and cleaning, but you didn't see the Latina CEO, that really sticks into your head. And it's so right. hard to recognize yourself and to, you know, recognize that you can sit at that table and that you have a, you know, a voice that you can use and that you can advocate and you can be that CEO. So breaking all those stereotypes about Latinos, 
it can be really hard for someone. Um, the other thing is that, you know, managing that Latinidad, like, uh, unfortunately, some work environments are not very Latino friendly. You know, even right, they don't right. say it out loud, like speaking Spanish in some work environments is not well seen. It's not, you know, oh, because you might be talking about other people and we don't know what you're talking about. No, that's right. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah. Like the way we dress, you know, Latinas dress differently. And in some environments the you know, the way we dress might be seen as inappropriate or like provocative or just it, it can be labeled in many different ways. The mannerisms that we have, we talk with our hands, we're very expressive, we're very vocal, that might be seen as like not very professional. So right. having to hide who you are and having to like adapt to like these uh, not very mindful standards, you know, they're very like, you know, Caucasian like standards. It's, it's just, it's just very hard for Latinos and they, a lot of these Latinos think that they have to hide who they are. In fact, you're going to see a lot of Latinos out there in the corporate world, and you would never know that they are Latinos until they, you know, they, you see their last name or like you find some sort of detail that tells you that they are Latinos because they hide it. They put on this armor just to, uh, you know, succeed or again, hide their Latinidad. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah which I think speaks to also colorism even within the even within the latinx community right because some like some of us can't hide it right like some of us can't hide that you you have your white latinos or white passing latinos mm -hmm. and and then you have some of us that you you know you can't hide it mm -hmm. and then the perceptions right so if we're talking about that imposter syndrome not only that we don't see maybe the representation of ourselves you're not going to see the more indigenous or the black uh representation as the ceos either on mm -hmm. univision or telemundo Never. um and and the world doesn't see us like that i have i've often shared this story of me going to a professional um convention workshop that i was at and i was was dressed in casual uh, business, casual clothes. I got into an elevator. I was going to my room and this white woman gets on the elevator and asked me, what time do we come by to clean the rooms? <laughs> what time do y'all come by to clean the rooms? Right. There was nothing about what I was wearing that would indicate I was staff. Right. So I think it's, it's how do you not have that impact feeling like an imposter in certain areas how does this not impact your mental health so with all of that in mind right what would you tell someone who is a first generation person who you mm -hmm. are from here right but you're still not even treated as such not that you should be treated better you know just because we're from here but mm -hmm. it's like i'm neither here nor there what would you tell a first generation person about how they can begin to very intentionally care for their mental health starting today yeah and uh, i i just need to say something about colorism because i think that's such an important topic and i think in our in our community uh, i don't think we address that topic a lot i think there is a lot of shame that's right. Yeah. Topic. And mm -hmm. uh, I think I think, you know, the first thing and the first step that we need to take is that to recognize that, yes, we have different, you know, experience depending on, you know, the color of, or of uh, our skin or like how we look and if we can hide better. Right. That, that's that's right. Thing that, right. Oh, if you, I have I have this 
experience. It, it, it was actually very traumatic because I still remember it when I was in college. One of the teachers, one of the professors told me uh, we were talking about um, multicultural and diversity and working with Caucasian clients. And she actually told me, if you don't open your mouth, you can pass as a Caucasian person. Your teacher told you this? Your professor? My professor. Yeah. Wow. From, from our school. Wow. Wow. And and I'm saying from our school because we both went to the same school. Oh, 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 I need to <laughs> off. Uh, okay, offline. You tell me who that was. <laughs> I think she thought it, that was a compliment. Right. I think she right. thought, and I was just deeply offended by that. But I recognize, mm-hmm. but I recognize that that might be true for a lot of mm-hmm. people. And I recognize I that. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it, that's, that's a topic for another podcast maybe, but yes. Uh, your experience as a first uh, generation American and as an immigrant, it's very different if you are an Afro Latina, if you are an indigenous Latina or a white Latina or a Mexican, right. which is a mix of like everything. That's right. Yep. Yep. It's very different. So going back to your question, uh, what I would say to a first generation American is that it is okay not to be okay, that you mm-hmm. don't have to be okay all the time that yes, it is okay to talk about your feelings, your emotions and your thoughts and your needs with someone outside your family, that it is okay to seek out support and that there is a growing number of therapists learning and training hard to be able to provide a high quality service to them, to their needs and connect to like their culture and like kind of like understand them as a whole. Um, that they don't have to conform with a uh, generic therapist, that they can find a specialized person that they can connect with. Like, yes, there are a lot of great therapists out there with great intentions, but we need someone that gets us and that gets our culture and that we don't spend our uh, 50-minute session explaining how Colombians, you know, deal with conflict or how Colombians you know, mm-hmm. uh, experience trauma and how we bring that trauma like into our uh, daily lives, for example. Mm-hmm. The Colombians in arepas and not tortillas. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I would, I would also tell them that, yes, there is generational trauma that we bring with us, but there is also generational strengths. And we need to... Yes. Yes. Talk about both, because I, I I feel that there is a like huge trend to talk about gener- like gen- intergener- I'm sorry, intergenerational trauma, and yeah. I don't think we are giving enough space to like intergenerational strengths. That's and right. I think we have bad uh, strengths that we can use and that we can implement, that we're so resilient and we're so resourceful and creative. We're survivors and we can use that. I'm not glorifying trauma or anything like that, but I think trauma teaches a lot. You know, the, all the post-traumatic growth that our, you know, our ancestors have gone through has brought a lot of like strengths that we can use and we can like used to our advantage in this society and we can contribute a lot with those strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. I'm sorry. Post-traumatic growth. I love that. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, I would also say that talking about our past, it's healthy and that 
it's uh, talking about our problems is healthy, that when we talk about them and we address them and we assign them a space in our lives, they have a lot less control over our lives right. and we can have more meaningful and present, you know, lives. Um, so true. That's really good. That's really good. Thank it. you for sharing that. Cause it was a lot that you said that I'm like, Oh, I love, like she said, post-traumatic growth. I love uh, focusing on intergenerational strength. Like I'm like, okay, I'm gonna start in- incorporating all of this. Right, right. Talk about. <laughs> Cause it is true. We do. And, and it's good that people are recognizing oh, it and want to deal with it, but it's also like, it's not all bad. Right. And so we also oh, have God. to tap into the good as well. So I think that's great. So can you please tell us why do you think therapy is dope? Well, I think therapy is dope because it's basically a safe space where you can be yourself, when you can show who you are, when you can talk about your thoughts and how you feel, and you can experience all these range of emotions safely. Um, that way you can learn to like regulate yourself and use those skills out there. Um, I just I just feel that therapy is dope because it just helps you get to know yourself better and understand your past, your connections, your, you know, all these generational things that you bring with you. But it also helps you channel the strengths that we just talked about. Um, yes. It's a self-care need. It's a need. I mean, I just see it as a need. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that we love, of course, we love therapy, we're proponents of it. But we also love when therapists are able to tell us why, why they also believe that they are dope. So Alejandra, tell us, I mean, again, we get to these to end of these, I say this all the time, it's clear to me why you all are dope. But why do you believe you are a dope therapist? I think I'm Dope because I have dedicated my professional life to serve my community and the niche that I chose to work with. Uh, I have specialized. I continue to train. Um, you know, I try to get better every day personally and professionally to serve my community. I'm a dope therapist because I recognize my, you know, weaknesses and the things that I have to work on. Uh, because I also recognize the clients that I cannot help. And I'm honest and transparent about that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have a wonderful support system with dope therapists that I can consult with, that I can, you know, process with. And that makes me a good therapist because working, uh, you know, in isolation in the mental health field is not the healthiest approach. Um so that makes me a, a dope therapist. I'm also a dope therapist because I go to therapy and I believe in therapy and I sit in the other side of on the other side of the couch and I talk about my struggles, I talk about my fears, I learn strategies. Um, so I am I'm able to be like in both roles. And I think that makes me a dope therapist. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I love this. Uh, This was so good. This was, was. my heart is so happy right now. Thank you. Mine too. too. I'm so, so happy and so glad, you know, to be able to have this conversation with you all. And I love what you do. And I love that you bring awareness to all these topics. We need to talk about, we need to talk Mm -hmm. more about mental health, you know, and our communities and 
normalize therapy and show people how dog therapy is. That's yes. right. That's right. That's we right. appreciate it. Please tell everyone how they can find you if they want to work with you. What are the steps and anything else that you have going on? Absolutely. My website is www.shayapsychotherapy.com. Shaya is, is A-H-A-Y-A. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also in psychology today. You can find me as Alejandra Restrepo. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I also have social media. I forgot to mention it's uh, at Shia Psychotherapy. Uh, I have TikTok and Instagram, and I do a lot of bilingual content, just normalizing, mm, yeah. you know, mental health and connecting with my clients through, uh, you know, videos and reels and memes and all these yeah. things. I think it's a very, yeah. very powerful tool to connect with clients and you're on the melanin mental health directory i might add so we have you there as well absolutely i am yes yes so make sure that y'all go follow her support her if you are seeking a therapist that specializes in first generation that does spanglish that also mm-hmm. works with trauma. Alejandra is the person for you. So thank you so much for joining. And we want to thank y'all for watching. As always, we will catch y'all next time. Follow us across social media at Melanin and Mental Health, Melanin Health on Twitter, and head over to www.melaninandmentalhealth.com to check out our dope merchandise to find dope therapists like Alejandra. And if you want to listen to previous podcasts, we'll talk to y'all later. Yeah. I like uh-huh. how you said Alejandra. Evan. I, I, really it. It. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Yes. I try to promote Yes, yes. All right, y'all. Have a great, great rest of the week.